Session 21, the, the, the titles of these sessions are getting longer and longer. Session 21, the Tribulation, Part 11, the Fifth Trumpet, Part 1. Boy, are you in for it. And we'll be looking at both charts today. We'll begin with number 11. During Pastor Jeremy's recent sermon series on Habakkuk, there was a focus on God's method of judging the sins of one group by employing a second group guilty of even more egregious transgressions. In the context of Habakkuk, it is Judah, Yahweh's chosen people after all, being scourged by Yahweh for their faithless rebellion by means of the arguably more sinful Chaldeans or Babylonians. And more than, more than once the Lord has done this in his word. Now, chart 11, please. There it is. Very good. We have a similar situation before us now as we consider the fifth trumpet in Revelation 9. The rebellious people on earth, those who have still rejected Christ Jesus as Savior and the true Messiah, are about to be scourged, not yet destroyed, not killed, but punished and tormented just short of death. Thank you, Scott. This they are surely due. But just as in the time of Habakkuk, the Lord God will punish their rebellion by means of beings even more egregiously evil than them. Demons from the abyss. We have so far examined the first four trumpets, Revelation 8, 6 to 12, all of which have done violence to the natural world, trumpets 1 to 3, and the celestial objects in the sky overhead, trumpet 4. Now with the next two trumpets, the violence will be aimed directly at people on earth. The events of the fifth trumpet, chapter 9, verses 1 to 11, will torment people to the point that they will seek death, they will plead for it, but not find it. The sixth trumpet, chapter 9, verses 13 to 21, will kill one-third of mankind. Both of these trumpet judgments will be directed at those who are not in Christ. Thus, it will not be directed at the 144,000 who had previously been sealed in him, Revelation 7, 4 to 8. And possibly, I can't be definite about this, and I don't think anyone can, but possibly, including others who have become believers during the tribulation. The text is silent on that, but we might safely assume that God would not send the demons from the pit 
to torment to the point of pleading for death people who are now his. But first, the flow of the narrative is interrupted by an announcement of what is about to occur. Delivered by an avian narrator, narrator, much as the prologue in Romeo and Juliet. There it was two households, both alike in dignity, in fair Verona where we lay our scene. But here it's woe, woe, woe three times to those who dwell on the earth. Three woes, and what we will be looking at is the first woe. But first, the eagle. Revelation 8, 13. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe! Woe! Woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. In other words, each trumpet announces a new woe. As mentioned in class last week, there's no good reason not to take God's word for what it says. The King James alone, the King James versions alone, as far as I can find, have angel instead of eagle. Even the new King James and the modern King James have angel. Now, I get it when Thomas Nelson decided to update the King James Version in 1975. They published the New Testament in 79, the entire Bible in 82. I, I get it that they purposely wanted to, as they say, preserve the accuracy and poetry of the King James Version. Okay, fine. But every scholar, I mean every scholar, agrees that it should be eagle. If you're interested, I have it here. I'm not going to read it in class. If you're interested in my notes are the dirty details of how that, why that is. About the Codex Sinaiticus, the Codex Allegus. If you're interested, it's there in the notes. And why not a speaking bird? Why not after all? Just, got, just ask Balaam if the Lord God can make animals speak. Numbers 22, 28. There's no reason at all to make this metaphorical. Or as Alan F. Johnson puts it, quote, this must be taken symbolically. Oh, really? No, it's God. Here we have a bird flying into the scene overhead to announce to everyone, not with a squawk, but in a clear, loud voice, presumably in a language anyone and everyone can understand. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. This is God's eagle. And you might note that it says an eagle or a eagle, an eagle. Literally, in the Greek, it's one eagle, henos. 
And that suggests that there are more messenger eagles like this one in God's economy. This is one of them. There are others. It's implied. Now, if we could have chart number 12, Zeb, I'd appreciate it. The fifth trumpet, Revelation 9, 1 to 11. The first woe, demons from the pit. Verse 1, Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth. So far we've seen a star that, quote, fell from heaven burning like a torch. Chapter 8, verse 10, And a star called Wormwood that poisons a third of earth's fresh water. And we concluded that they probably referred to, well, I concluded, maybe you don't agree, that they probably referred in both instances to some sort of meteoroid, some rocky thing out of the sky to get the job done. Now we have a star of a different sort, one that seems to be a person. Actually, it's more than seems. It seems pretty explicit that it's a person rather than a chunk of rock. For the text says a key was given, quote, to him. And that, quote, he opened the bottomless pit. So who is this star that has fallen to the earth? I'm glad you asked. Note, first of all, and this is of critical importance in our identification of the star, the tense of the verb. In the NASB, it's had fallen. And most of the other modern translations, even the New King James has past tense in one way or another. Only the original King James Version has, quote, I saw a star fall from heaven onto the earth, end quote. But the verb is in the perfect active tense, which means that this is already accomplished. It's not happening before John's eyes that this star is falling. Probably an angel of some sort. This star is already down. He has already fallen. And he, however, I don't know, it doesn't say how he makes this interpretation, but he knows, he acknowledges that this is a fallen angel. John did not witness the fall of the angel, but identifies him as an angel that fell earlier. And the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. So who is this angel? As always, there have been some very imaginative conjectures on the part of our faithful interpreters, on those we will not dwell. This class will be long enough as it is. The options seem to logically whittle down to three possibilities. Either Christ Jesus, a nameless angel, or Satan two of which are problematic. So let's consider these in turn. 
<laughs> pardon me, but uh, my mind is filled with all these imaginative conjectures. Uh, I, there was one, I forget who it was, but somebody said quite definitively that this uh, battle going on in Revelation clearly speaks of the uh, war in Iraq. Okay. Let's consider Christ Jesus first. The book of the Revelation opens with Jesus the Christ revealing himself in his glorified state to John and declaring in chapter 1, verse 18, quote, And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. End quote. Oliver Green, in his Bible Prophecy, 1970, cites this as evidence that the individual spoken of in 9-1 cannot be anyone other than Christ. But 9-1 states that this fallen one is handed the key to the pit by someone else. If this star is Christ himself, he already has possession of the key. He doesn't need to get it from somebody else. If this star is Christ himself, he's got it. However, Christ Jesus could indeed be the one who is giving the key to the star. That would track. Then there is the troublesome word, fallen. The Greek is peptokota, from the Greek pipto. The associate Hebrew word in the Septuagint means, quote, fall, collapse, be inferior to, drop, bring to ruin, cast, throw down, let drop, abandon. Where else in Scripture do we read of the Son of God being so described? Nowhere. Don't bother looking. The Son of God was sent from heaven to earth. He came from heaven to earth. He did not fall from heaven to earth. Not to mention the fact that he's not on earth during the tribulation. And it would be inappropriate to refer to the glorified Christ in the Revelation as a star or an angel, an angel. I conclude that while Christ may be the one giving the key, he's not the one receiving the key, and thus not the individual who opens the bottomless pit. Now let's look at Satan. And I hope to leave time, I, I hope to leave time for questions or ridicule at the end of the session. I'll take your arrows. Satan. I agree with Wolverd that this may be Satan. This option, too, is problematic, but most objections can be answered. If this is indeed the case, this demonstrates once again how the Revelation narrative 
shifts back and forth in time. How wonderful it would be if we could, but we cannot read it in a linear fashion. We cannot start in the beginning of Revelation or Daniel or any of it and just read through it. Okay, here's what happens. My job would be done for me if that was the case. I'd say, okay, read Revelation and there you go. We can't do that. If this is Satan in this passage, he has already fallen to earth. Past tense. Done. In Revelation 12, three chapters hence, in verses 7 to 13, we have the narrative for the great war in heaven between Michael and his angels and, quote, the dragon, that's Satan, and his angels. This is a war that takes place in heaven. Verse 9 of that passage describes the result of that war. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who was called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Thus, the events of chapter 12, which are in the package of parenthetical visions just prior to the first bowl of wrath that most commentators place at the midpoint of the tribulation, that is, the beginning right before the great tribulation of the last three and a half years, these events occur prior to the events of chapter 9, but are also prophesied back in the Old Testament and in the Gospels, to which Jesus himself refers in Luke 10:18, on the surface at least, in the past tense. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Now, this quick sidebar. The verb... Ethoron, I was watching or I beheld, is in the imperfect tense, which means it is what we would call the past tense, yet is continuous or ongoing, which muddies the water a bit when referring to Satan's fall from heaven. Further muddying the water is that the Son of God ultimately dwells outside of time. So if it was past tense, when was that past tense? Was it right there? Was it something else? I, the Son of God was only in our history, in our time for 30-odd years. Other than that, who knows where he is? He's here, he's there, he's everywhere. I loved what he said in John 8, 58, one of my favorite verses. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. That's great. That's... So it's almost impossible to know the precise time frame for his reference. But let's look at Isaiah 14, please. Isaiah chapter 14, please turn there. 
Isaiah 14, let's read verses 12 to 15. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth. You have, been weak. you have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. I like your interpretation. That was good. I, I. With Satan, it's all I. This raises one of the primary objections to Satan being the one given the key. And the key essentially means authority. He's given the authority to open the pit. It's pointed out that Satan will be an inmate of the pit during the millennium, not its king. True. But that does not prevent God from using him to orchestrate this judgment against those who reject Christ. Many a leader has later found himself an inmate of the prison to watch to which he once consigned others throughout history. Besides, it's possible that the king, the angel of the abyss in 9-11, is an angel other than the one given the key in 9-1. A more tenacious problem with Satan being the one given the key, in my opinion, is the restriction to the horde's victims found in verse 4. They were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And I read that and I thought, well, now, wait a minute. For me, this raises the point if he's indeed the one who unlocks the pit, Satan unlocks the pit to set loose the horde of locusts, why would Satan want to be a party to the torment of only his own flop followers? Your blank stares are not encouraging. One possible answer to this might be that since he's been booted out of heaven by this point, he's even more bound to obey the commands of Christ or the Father. Eh. After all, even while he was still in heaven, Satan was restricted by God in his inflictions on Job. Job chapter 1, 6 to 2, 7. Neither Walvord nor Sice speak to this. That's my problem. I seem to be the only one who is concerned about this. On the other hand, what are the odds that whomever gives the key to Satan is pulling a fast one on him? Now, I'm just sharing my thought process with you, okay? Don't write this down. But note the action sequence of the first five verses. One, the key to the bottomless pit is given to someone. 
Two, this individual uses the key to open the pit. Three, locusts are released upon the earth. Power is given them. Four, then and only then are the locusts told, not the guy who opened the gate, but the locusts are told not to hurt nature, which is their natural bent, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads, that is, unbelievers. Five, further, they may not kill anyone, but only torment for five months. Hmm. Only after they've been set free are they told, well, now, wait a minute, you can't do this, you can't do that, and oh, by the way, you can't harm anyone so sealed in God. Is it possible that Satan was hoodwinked? No one can say. Now, let's look at a nameless angel. This is certainly possible. There's nothing in the text that would preclude this individual being, for the next ten verses at least, an anonymous angel. We would, we would presume an evil angel, for he's fallen. Whoever it is, he's fallen. This is also the easiest of the three options to embrace. No problem. Other angels besides Satan have fallen from. They've been kicked out of heaven. Most assume that whoever this is in verse 1 is also the one designated king over the demons of the abyss and whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in the Greek he has the name Apollyon. Both of these appellations mean the same, destroyer. So if this is the case, we can readily assume that this individual is an evil angel, in cahoots with Satan at least. However, these could be different angels. They don't have to be the same. It's just that most everyone assumes that. The first to open the gates of the abyss, the second to rule it. My conclusion. Seiss concludes that the fallen angel given the key in 9-1 is Satan, but that he is not the king over the locusts and angel of the abyss, 9-11. Seiss concludes that this is one of Satan's archangels named Abaddon or Apollyon. Walverd, albeit less conclusively, leans towards Satan being the angel given the key, and because of the name destroyer concludes that the king of verse 11 is Satan as well. For myself, if anyone cares, I conclude that the angel given the key is not Christ, but Christ very well could be the one giving the key. With Walverd, I lean towards Satan being the fallen angel in verse 1, but it would be much easier to accept that it's just a generic messenger. But I lean towards Satan. However, because the angel of verse 11 is given a name different, although of the same character, 
from other appellations for Satan, I conclude with Sice that he is one of Satan's archangels, designated king of the abyss. As to this question of why Satan would inflict torment on his own followers, there are too many unknowns in that equation to sway my decision in either direction. And apparently, I seem to be the only one troubled by it. No one mentions it. I've been there before. Now, before we close this session, I'd like to just begin verse 2. The bottomless pit. He opened the bottomless pit. Literally, quote, shaft of the abyss. So the abyss is a bottomless pit. And what this term literally means is the shaft leading to it is unlocked, is opened. Later in verse 11, it'll just be called the abyss. And that's how the NIVs have it. I'm sorry Renee isn't here to give her an attaboy. Uh, shaft of the abyss is how the NIV has it. Now, I'm going to touch on this lightly here. When we return to class in two weeks, business meeting next week, uh, I'll distribute a handout that discusses and compares the various words in the Bible for the underworld, abyss, pit, Hades, Sheol, Gehenna, or hell, lake of fire. So I'll lay all that out in a handout. We could, we could fill a whole session with that if we wanted to. From our passage here, along with Luke 8.31 and Romans 10.7, but especially Revelation 20, we learn that the abyss is the secured prison for demons. I take it not all demons, not all fallen angels are in the abyss, but some of them are. And it, but this is a place reserved for demons. It will be Satan's residence during the millennium. So let's close by reading Revelation 20. Revelation 20, verses 1 to 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Thank you, Dave. I think that might be the first question I pose when I get to heaven, if I'm allowed to pose a question, if I do not know the answer already why God says he must be released for a short time. Who says? Why? 
Keep him there. Now, I've left plenty of time for questions or comments. Because this is kind of juicy stuff. Oh, good. We can roast beef soon. Sure. Never give me any dead space. I appreciate your comments about the angel, or I mean the eagle, literal meaning. Um, same thing with the fallen angel. Uh, I think it's obvious that you know we're told what God wants us to know, but He doesn't tell us everything, and somehow I have to just except that God's ways are not my ways, and I don't need to know everything. But I like your approach that uh, it's literal, and if it was Satan, they probably would have said Satan. Same with the other two. Um, and that's okay. But being a literalist, keep that mic there for a moment, being a literalist, are you troubled by whoever it is being called a star and we have to figure out who the star is? I mean, do you carry literalism to the point where it says star, it has to be a star? Um, I have no trouble with that because I realize that the stars were created in assignment you know, Satan was the morning star. Jesus was never a star. No. And I have a little bit of trouble when you brushed over Wormwood. Um, you know, why? When, when you miss a class and don't check out the notes, we dealt with that. You weren't here, I think. Don't be troubled. I'm not. What else? Yes, the notes are always there, so don't show up and say, I haven't covered anything. You're going to be asking for trouble. <laughs> Why don't you make Wormwood a meteorite? Oh, boy. You're asking me. See, see I've, I've, I've dealt with that, and it's gone now. What did you do? Well, I catch up with the rest of you, is what she said. What? She told me to go online so I could catch up with the rest of you. She who must be obeyed, yes. Um, <laughs> you have one of those too. Oh. Um, do you think wormwood should be something other than a rock coming down and polluting the waters? Yes. And that would be? A star. Okay. Which I believe has personality, a person or 
an actual embodiment. I think stars are a symbol, just like the wedding ring. I think there are people, person, not people, but uh, beings. heavenly beings behind the stars. Okay. Dennis. Well, I don't want to, <clears throat> I just wanted to add this to the mix. Jesus is called the bright morning star in Revelation chapter 22, verse 16. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star, but I think that's a different. What's the, what's the passage? Revelation 22, verse 16. I have sent me to the church as I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. I, I vaguely remember examining that. And there's, has, does anyone have fresh information on that? There's a, a lyric in a song that speaks of bright morning and what and we think it's Christ and it's really Satan. Well, this is what John MacArthur says. Okay. He says uh, Jesus is also a descendant, obviously, of David, which establishes his humanity. Uh, the bright morning star. This is the bright star announcing the arrival of the day. When Jesus comes, he will be the brightest star who will shatter the darkness of man's night and herald the dawn of God's glorious day. But I find it interesting that the NASB, which does this faithfully, does not capitalize bright morning star. I, I confess, I, at, at one point I looked into that and it's gone. Uh, Sorry, but I may be thinking of a different passage. What else? Good thoughts. We got to chew on this. I mean, this is this isn't just some. These passages. I mean, there are other passages in Scripture that. We have to chew on to understand, but this is a different beast altogether, and and we need to. Dave. On the morning star thing, Second Peter one nineteen, so we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. It's suggestive that it's. Through the word of God, this morning star of Christ arises in your hearts. Just, just to add on to that, another thing on the eagle I'm wondering about, if it's a literal eagle, it's going to take a long time to deliver that message all over the world. Why? Well, unless it can fly very, very fast and speak very fast. Well, <laughs> no. The reason I say ask is that when Christ returns at the end of the tribulation, everyone will see him. Wouldn't it be this? However, that works. Wouldn't it? Couldn't it be the same for the eagle? 
Sure, but then I wouldn't take it literally. Yeah, and sort of point I was trying to make. It's some kind of supernatural thing or phenomenon. Or well, or, it is supernatural. Yes, of course. And and maybe it looks like an eagle. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's an angel that looks like an eagle. Right. Yeah. Uh oh. No fair looking in the Hebrew Bible. Okay. Okay. When I don't know where it's at, but when it describes the various angels and heavenly beings, it describes some as having the face of an eagle, their four face as a man. I think it's in John talks about that. Some commentators tie that in because one of the beasts around the throne doesn't he have a face like an eagle? Or a bird or something and but I don't see why that has to have anything to do with this yeah yeah I I it's funny how we all agree yes we take this literally but notice how we work around the edges don't we Yes, yes, you do, Stephen. Yes, you do. I mean, if you say, okay, it's literally a star, but there's a being behind it, wait a minute. All I'm saying is I think we all do this, depending on the passage. Yes, literally. Now, If we want to be literally literal, a star is a sun in a different part of the sky. It's a glowing mass like our sun. That's a star, what human beings call a star. So if you're going to be literal, that star is going to fall to earth and corrupt the water. Well, yeah. It's also going to destroy the earth. I'm, 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 I'm not so much arguing. I'm just saying, as we work through this, and it's going to get even more fantastical than this, we, all of us, tend to bend our definition, just a little bit at least, of being literal. Because here, we have it called a star. But obviously, it's a being. Him. It's called him. He holds a key. So, we have to take each passage for what it's saying and what it means in the, in the whole. Yeah. Just to add to the star reference, there seems to be a few other references to it, but one is uh, Zechariah's. I'm yeah. sorry, go ahead. No, I was just being snotty. Um, <laughs> one is Zechariah's prophecy in Luke chapter 1, uh, 76 through 79 say, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, and you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways 
to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in the darkness and in the shadows of death to guide their feet in the way of peace. And as well as a reference in numbers as well. Where's the star? Did I miss something? The sunrise and giving light. I think it's in, it's alluded to as, as, as light and um, By the way, I just remembered, it's an Old Testament prophecy that speaks of a star, morning star, something like that. Yeah, and Numbers 22, is that the one you're referring it's, to? It's Satan. Oh, okay. Well, Numbers 22 says, I see him, but not now I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down the sons of Sheath. Just a number of references, interestingly. Yeah, yeah. Okay, put your concordance away. Yeah, star is, is, is used a lot in various ways. So we have to figure out what it means here. But here it obviously means someone who can hold a key in his hand or, or him. It's called him. So. Our Father, this is a strange and hard passage to understand. We need your Spirit to clarify it for us. He is the one who translates your written word for us. Please remove all of our individual baggage and presuppositions and tell us what you meant when you put it down, what you want us to understand. Only then will you be glorified in our lives as we digest this story, this true story that has not yet occurred. But thank you for giving it to us, as troublesome and hard to understand as it is. Thank you for entrusting it to us. In Jesus' name, amen.